Turn with me to Acts chapter 21. We're going to read the first 16 verses. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, Leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. God bless the reading and preaching of his word. You may all be seated, and as you are, let's pray together as we come to God's Word this morning. Our Father, as always, how grateful we are for the blessing of Your Word. We're grateful, Father, that You have revealed Yourself to us, chiefly through the living Word, Your Son, Jesus Christ, and also through this written Word, which is living, which is active, which is breathed out by You, which is inerrant, which is infallible, and which is profitable for us in all of its content. And so, Father, as we come to it this morning, we ask, Holy Spirit, would you be with us? Would you illuminate these words to our understanding? And Father, would you put these words to work in our lives and our hearts? Would you cause us today, by your divine power that is at work within us, to not just be hearers of the Word, but to become doers of the Word, Father. 
may you continue the work of transforming us by the renewing of our minds. Father, may the words of my mouth today and may the meditations of our hearts upon your holy word be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to jump in here and pick up right where we left off last week, where we were looking together at the words of the Apostle Paul to the elders of the church in Ephesus, specifically in verse 32 of Acts chapter 20. And then we're going to come and focus on what happened next here in chapter 21 today. For those of you who weren't here last week, in Acts chapter 20, Paul was returning from his third missionary journey all throughout Macedonia and Greece. And he was hoping, he was planning to get back to Jerusalem in time for Pentecost. And he's got a substantial financial gift with him that's been collected from the churches all throughout Macedonia. Despite their own impoverishment, they were so gracious that they wanted to help the church in Jerusalem. And on his way back, you remember, he bypassed the city of Ephesus in order to keep on schedule. And instead of stopping there, because he would have got stuck there, because that place and that church and those people were so precious to him, he would have been there for a long, long time. And so instead, he disembarked in Miletus, which is to the south of Ephesus, on the, on the western coast of Asia Minor. And when he was in Miletus, Paul sent for the elders of the church of Ephesus, the leaders, the shepherds, the the pastors of the church of Ephesus, to come and join him in Miletus so that he might meet with them and impart a very, very important message to them since he's become convinced by the Holy Spirit that affliction and imprisonment and eventually death lie ahead for him. And so this is going to be the last time that he would see those dear brothers in Christ from Ephesus, the ones that he had ministered to and been with for over three years in Ephesus in a previous season of his ministry there. And so knowing that those guys too, and that church also, is going to face opposition to the gospel, is going to have to contend with the realities of of persecution in this world, is going to have to deal with the fierce wolves like we looked at last time that would bring false teaching and destructive heresies into the church. Knowing all of that, Paul is pleading with the elders from Ephesus urgently and admonishing them to keep careful watch over themselves and also over the church, over the flock of God's sheep that is so precious to God that that He in the person of the incarnate Jesus Christ shed His own blood to obtain that flock. And so these shepherds, these elders who keep watch over, who oversee the precious flock of God, they need to stay alert. They've got to be diligent. They've got to be ready to count the cost of humbly and selflessly and sacrificially serving and shepherding God's church. And the only way that they're going to be able to do that, and this is where we closed our time last week, the only way they're going to be able to do that is by heeding this admonition that Paul gives in verse 32 of chapter 20, where he says to them, Now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up 
and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And like we said last time, at the end of our time last week, even though there's not a formal technical difference between God and His Word, right? Because you can't abstract the Word of God from the mind of God, the will of God that is omniscient and perfect and immutable and unchanging. Even though there's not a difference between God and His Word, there is an important distinction which Paul is emphasizing in verse 32 of chapter 20 there in commending these elders to not only remaining steadfast in the Word of God, in their study of it, in their teaching of it, in their preaching of it, in purity, being careful not to drift from the truth of the Word and and into error. They've got to be careful there, but they must also not only be faithfully abiding in the Word of God, but also be abiding in God, communing with God in unceasing prayer, in worship, in constantly drawing near to Him, so that He will be drawing near to them, as He promises to always do, even as James says. Because standing firm and being alert and keeping close watch over ourselves and over one another, and walking by faith and running the race with endurance, resisting temptation, crucifying sin in our flesh, continually growing and thriving in holiness, ultimately finishing the course, And finishing well, all of that depends not only on an increasing understanding and knowledge of God's holy word, but also on increasing in our love of God himself. And in growing, trusting, intimate communion with him and dependence on him in every single season of life. And so... As we saw, that's ultimately what all of Paul's urgent admonitions and exhortations to these elders, that's what it all comes down to. It comes down to this impassioned plea for them to be abiding in God and in His living and active Word because the Almighty God who is our Father and His living, active, life-transforming Word are able. And you remember The word for able that Paul uses there in verse 32 is the Greek word dunamai. And we get words like dynamo, like a power plant, from that word. Generating power. God and His Word are able to generate the power that nothing else in this world or in us is able to generate to build us up in that growing, thriving holiness and sanctification that that perseveres through whatever trials there are, that endures, that continues to run no matter how hard it is, that finishes the course well and receives the eternal inheritance of everlasting glory in the presence of God. So Paul knows and understands and has experienced that there are powers at work in this world and in our own flesh. Spiritual powers of darkness, right? The powerful schemes of Satan and the power of sin that remains in us. The power of this world's hatred of God and opposition to His truth. All of that is at work 
constantly in myriad ways in this world and in our lives. And all of that power is at work to tear us down and to lead us astray and to cause us to drift and to ultimately destroy us. And so because those powers are real, he is commending these men by, and by extension the flock that they shepherd and by extension all of us are being commended to the greater power, to God, to His Word, the only power that's able to build us up, keep us on course, cause us to finish the course and finish it well and receive that eternal inheritance of everlasting life. And all of that is what leads us then straight into chapter 21 now where we see this divine power, this dunamis that comes from abiding in God and comes from abiding in His Word. We see it empowering Paul as he sets his face towards Jerusalem now where afflictions and imprisonments await him and he knows it because the Holy Spirit has told him so. And Paul sets his face there, even as Luke records in the Gospel of Luke that he wrote also, that Jesus set his own face towards Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him on the way to the cross. So, having said everything that he had to say to these elders, to his precious friends and brothers in Christ there in Miletus, Paul knelt down, verse 36 there, of chapter 20, Paul knelt down and prayed with them all in Miletus. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. And the ship is sailing south and the journey is heading east towards Phoenicia, eventually Judea, eventually Jerusalem. Now Paul's traveling with Luke, who of course wrote the book of Acts, and there's also others with them, other friends, other traveling companions that we've encountered in previous chapters. They head first due south from Miletus to the island of Kos, and from there they start a, a an easterly journey that took them to the island of Rhodes and then back over to the mainland of Asia Minor to the port city of Patara where they would board a much bigger ship, a a large cargo ship that was capable of sailing further and and capable of, of sailing across the open sea more towards Phoenicia, north of Judea. They sailed past Cyprus and they put into port in Phoenicia in the city of Tyre where Luke tells us they stayed for a full week while the ship unloaded its cargo. Cargo ships in those days were were capable of hauling literally hundreds of tons of cargo. And of course, without all the cranes and, and all of the machinery that we have in our modern day, it took a long time to unload hundreds of tons of cargo with sheer manpower. And so, instead of they could, have, they could have traveled overland. They could have gone south to Judea by foot and, and gotten there quicker. But instead of doing that, Paul decided to stay there entire for a week, knowing probably that he had time still in order to make it to Jerusalem for Pentecost. 
And before sailing south again for Ptolemais and Caesarea, he and his companions, it says, sought out the disciples, the, the, the Christians, the followers of Jesus who were living there in Tyre, and they spent the week together. And this is where the story shifts from being just a chronicle of Paul's travels as he heads towards Jerusalem to being an accounting by Luke of the power of God the Holy Spirit at work in the life of Paul in order to focus Paul's conviction and in order to forge Paul's commitment to pursue the will of the Lord, whatever the cost. And those three words, conviction, commitment, and cost, are our particular focus this morning as we see the Spirit of God operating in Paul's life. First thing to do is I I just want to define those three words for our purposes here today. I want to define them like this. Conviction means the principles, the convictions that guide our lives, that define us, that compel us in the decisions and the choices that we make in the way that we live our lives. And commitment means the God-given ability to persevere in those convictions. And cost is the value that fuels our commitment such that we are able to stay committed to our convictions regardless of the cost if we are fueled by the Holy Spirit. And speaking in these kinds of terms, this is, this is just how life works, right? For every human being on a very basic level, every human, every person, everyone has some kind of convictions that, that, that govern the way that they live. They have some kind of guiding principles that define the course of their lives and, and that compel their decisions. And everyone also has a level of commitment that will strengthen their resolve to be able to adhere to those convictions or not. And everyone has a cost that they're willing to count for the sake of their convictions and commitment, right? All human beings do. The only question is, where do our convictions come from? What or who defines convictions in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives? And what establishes the level of commitment that we have in in our lives to be able to adhere to those convictions? And what cost are we willing to count? And who determines that cost that we're willing to count for the sake of of our convictions and our commitments. Those are the things that I want for us to keep in focus here as we follow Paul's path towards Jerusalem and toward everything that he knew was awaiting him there. And remember, remember this, back in chapter 19, while Paul was traveling all throughout Macedonia, Luke recorded in verse 21 of Acts 19 that Paul had resolved in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, 
Paul had resolved in the Holy Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. This was a matter of Holy Spirit given conviction for Paul to go to Jerusalem. And remember that in chapter 20, Paul had said to those elders from Ephesus these words, Behold, I am going to Jerusalem. Got a conviction? He's committed. I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Holy Spirit. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me everywhere that I go that imprisonment and afflictions await me in Jerusalem. And so see, even though Paul knew by the direct testimony of the Holy Spirit, that there would be a great personal cost in in staying committed to his conviction, Paul was willing to count that cost. And with God-given strength, he was was able to remain committed to the God-given conviction because there was something of greater value to him than his own comfort, than his own safety, than his own life even, right? Remember how he summed that up in verse 24 of Acts chapter 20? I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only, here's, here's, the, here's the thing of greater value than my life. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I'll die for it, Paul says. And so what we're seeing here is that in Paul's mind and heart and life, there are Holy Spirit-focused convictions and a Holy Spirit-forged commitment that is fueled by a Holy Spirit-defined cost, a value that transcended Paul's valuation of his own life and that fueled his commitment to adhere to his God-given conviction. So, here he comes with this conviction, with this commitment, ready to count the cost. Here, Paul now comes to the city of Tyre where he's spending the week in fellowship with other Christians, brothers and sisters in the Lord. And verse 4, look at it there. Look at verse 4 with me of Acts 21. It says that through the Spirit, and again, the Holy Spirit is who Luke means there because he uses the definite article, the word the. It's not just Spirit or a Spirit, but through the Spirit, Through the Holy Spirit, they, the other Christians there entire, through the Holy Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, what is up with that? Did the same Holy Spirit who constrained Paul to go to Jerusalem and endure affliction and imprisonment, is the same Holy Spirit now telling Paul through these Christians entire not to go? Did the Holy Spirit give a different message? Did the Holy Spirit change his mind? No. Of course not. The immutable mind and will of the unchanging God cannot change or be changed. 
So what is going on here? Well, hang on to the question and follow the story along even further. Luke has said that these these Christians, through the Holy Spirit, were telling Paul not to go, but what's he do? He goes, right? So is he ignoring the Holy Spirit? He goes, after a week there in Tyre, with these Christians and friends and brothers and sisters pleading with him not to go, verse 5 says Paul went. He departed and went on with his journey towards Jerusalem. He got back on the boat, heading south, after kneeling as he did with the Ephesian elders in Miletus and and praying with these Christians here. And then verse 7 says that their their next stop was Ptolemais, where they spent... Another day among Christians. And then verse 8, they depart again. They keep heading south, closer and closer to Jerusalem. And they come to Caesarea. Now you remember Caesarea, right? That was where the Holy Spirit had done such powerful work in the Gentile household of Cornelius. Back in chapter 10, through Peter's ministry of the gospel. That's been more than 20 years ago now. And now, Paul and his companions, 22 years later, have come to Caesarea, and they're welcomed in to stay in the home of Philip the Evangelist, who is one of the seven, verse 8 says. Last time we saw Philip was all the way back in Acts chapter 8, before Paul was even converted. And Philip was preaching the gospel and evangelizing there in Caesarea and in the areas all around the the coastal city there of Caesarea. He was one of the seven who were chosen originally by the apostles back in Acts chapter 6 to tend to the needs of the church, to tend to the needs of the widows so that the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and the study of the word. And, and, And again, all of that was before... The risen Lord Jesus had encountered Saul in chapter 9 along the road to Damascus and utterly transformed his life with divine supernatural power. And now here Paul comes. 30 years after chapter 8, here Paul comes to Philip's house in Caesarea. And Philip is still there. All these years later, still faithfully preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in Caesarea. So faithful is he to this ministry of the gospel, indeed, that he's come to be known among the Christians there as Philip the Evangelist. That's just who they know him as. Philip's got a family now. He's married, has a house big enough for for Paul and all his traveling companions to be able to come and stay with him. He's got four unmarried virgin daughters who prophesied, verse 9 says. Luke is just tuning us into the fact that still here in this stage of the development of the early church, 30 years after the Holy Spirit filled His people on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem way back in Acts chapter 2, still the Word of God is being fulfilled. In the early decades of the church, as people's sons and daughters are prophesying, even as the prophet Joel predicted that they would way back in the Old Testament. And now in verse 10, Luke says that while they are staying at Philip's house, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Judea is to the south, but remember 
that the ancients didn't orient their maps the way we do. We orient our maps north to south. They didn't do that. They oriented their maps to the east, which is why we call the land of the east the Orient. And remember that the land of Israel and and, and, and in the immediate surrounding areas around Israel, in that local territory, everything was oriented, especially in the minds of the Jewish people, towards Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was up in the hill country of Judea, so that as you were traveling to Jerusalem from anywhere else around that local territory, you were going up. And if you were traveling from Jerusalem, you were going down to your destination. And so that's why Luke says that Agabus came down from the south to the north from Judea, where Jerusalem is, to Caesarea, where Paul is staying in Philip's home. And Agabus was a prophet, legit prophet of God, filled with words from the Holy Spirit that came out of his mouth. We've met him before, too, in the book of Acts. He was the one, back in Acts chapter 11, who foretold by the Holy Spirit, predictive prophecy, foretold that there would be a great famine all over the world of the Roman Empire. And that prophecy was fulfilled, Luke says, in the days of Claudius. And that's what had prompted the church in Antioch to send relief, to send aid down to the, or up to the saints in Jerusalem so that they could be prepared for that coming famine. So Agabus is a legitimate prophet who is able to speak words from God audibly. And here we see Agabus the prophet prophesying again. And this time, he engages in a, in a kind of prophecy, a form of prophecy that was common and traditional among the Old Testament prophets of God. It's, it's a kind of prophecy in action, where the prophet doesn't just say something audibly, he acts it out. He gives a little object lesson in order to illustrate the message that God is speaking through him. The prophet Ahijah did that in, in 1 Kings chapter 11, where he took his garment and tore it into 12 pieces as a part of the prophecy that God was going to divide the kingdom. Isaiah did it in Isaiah chapter 20, when he stripped all of his clothing off and the sandals of his feet, took it all off, walked around naked, as a part of God's prophecy against Egypt and how the Assyrians were going to come and strip Egypt bare. In, in Jeremiah chapter 13, God told the prophet to tie a loincloth around his waist and then to take that loincloth and go hide it in the cleft of a rock where it, it rotted, it became spoiled. It became, he says it was good for nothing. And God says, thus shall I do to the pride of Judah and Jerusalem. I will spoil them. Ezekiel did it too. He enacted various prophecies signifying the coming siege of Jerusalem by way of a a broken tablet of clay that illustrated how how the great city would become broken and a, a loaf of defiled bread that illustrated how desperate the condition of the people inside that city would be when the Babylonians surrounded it and laid siege to it. So see, there's precedent for God the Holy Spirit doing things this way. 
prophesying this way through his prophets, through enacting the prophecy that they were proclaiming. This is exactly what Agabus does here now as he comes into Caesarea in verse 11 of Acts 21. He takes Paul's belt that he's wearing around his waist and Agabus takes that belt and binds his own hands and feet with it, prophesying in the Holy Spirit. Notice Luke says there in verse 11, Thus says the Holy Spirit, just like an Old Testament prophet would do. Thus saith the Lord. This is the Word of God. This is not my opinion. Thus says the Holy Spirit, with with His hands and feet bound by Paul's belt, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And again... On the one hand, that shouldn't come as any surprise because the Holy Spirit has already testified to Paul in every city that he traveled through during his third missionary journey that affliction and imprisonment awaited him when he got to Jerusalem. So, again, if the Holy Spirit is speaking that prophecy through Agabus and has already testified of it to Paul and has constrained Paul to go to Jerusalem where that affliction and imprisonment await him, then what do we make of those disciples up in Tyre who went through, or who through the Holy Spirit were, were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem? Here's what I think it means. I think the response here in verse 12 of Paul's companions, including, by the way, Luke himself, because he uses the word we, Their response to Agabus' prophecy that the the Jews of Jerusalem were going to bind Paul and deliver him over to the Gentile, their, their response explains it. Agabus gave the prophecy, the prediction of Paul's binding and affliction. Agabus gave that prophecy from the Holy Spirit. And then the friends and companions of Paul responded to it, begging him not to go. And I think that's the same thing that's going on up in verse 4 with the disciples from Tyre. From the Holy Spirit, they received the prophecy that Paul would suffer in Jerusalem. And then, from themselves, from their own humanity, from the feelings and desires of their own human hearts, Then they responded to the Spirit's prophecy by begging Paul not to go. John Stott says it like this, and I think this is helpful. He says, you have to draw a distinction between a prediction and a prohibition. The Spirit is predicting Paul's suffering, but he's not prohibiting Paul from going. That was coming from the people themselves. Through the various prophecies, including Agabus's, that the Holy Spirit was, was predicting Paul's suffering in Jerusalem at the hands of the Jews, but not prohibiting Paul to go through those prophecies. So Stott says, the warning that the suffering was coming was divine. It was from the Holy Spirit. But the urging not to go was human rising up out of their own human hearts and feelings and desires. 
Now that doesn't mean that those people in Tyre in verse 4 and the ones including Luke in Caesarea in verse 12 who were urging Paul not to go, it doesn't mean that they were consciously and deliberately and willfully trying to resist the revealed will of God the Holy Spirit. It means that they were human. It means that they were experiencing very normal and and non-sinful human emotions and feelings. It means that they loved Paul. They believed what the Holy Spirit was predicting, and they were terrified for their friend. They didn't want him to suffer, because they cared about him as a brother. As a beloved friend, they cared about him. They didn't want to lose him because they loved him. And at the same time, they all, again, including Luke himself in verse 12, in urging Paul not to go to Jerusalem, they all allowed those very normal, very understandable human emotions and feelings, they allowed them to take the driver's seat in terms of conviction, commitment, and cost. Their own human feelings determined that the cost was too high and caused commitment to waver and caused Paul's conviction to go to Jerusalem to be called into question. And the obvious question that God's Word poses to us in this is how prone are we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, as disciples of our Lord, how prone are we to that same tendency? to defaulting to our own human instincts and impulses and feelings and desires in forming our convictions and in forging our commitment to to adhere to those convictions and, and in determining the cost that we're willing to count for the sake of those convictions and commitments. Now, for the unbeliever, it's it's all about their feelings. It's all about their own perspective, their own wisdom. For the unbeliever, the Word of God and its wisdom and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, those play zero part in the unbeliever in forming the the convictions, the principles that guide and define and and compel the decisions and, and direction of their lives, right? Whatever guiding principles the unbeliever is living by, whatever convictions, they come from other sources of wisdom than the Word of God, than the Holy Spirit, right? And those other sources, whatever they are, they might be influenced by God's common grace in this world to one degree or another. Like, for instance, uh, an unbelieving doctor may take a, 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 a Hippocratic oath to do no harm, and, and that oath is informed by the common grace of God. But that doctor has no allegiance to the Word of God. Or, or a soldier's conviction that freedom is worth 
fighting for may have been shaped by the common grace of God, even if that soldier is not a believer and has no allegiance to God's word. For the unbeliever, the word of God is not the primary source of the guiding convictions of life. And and so then very often their convictions become radically skewed from the principles of truth and goodness that are defined by God in His Word. So this is is where the conviction that homosexuality is good comes from. Right? This This is where the conviction that abortion is a good thing to do comes from. Right? It comes from the fact that the unbeliever is not forming their convictions, their guiding principles on the basis of God's Word, and they can get very, very skewed. This is where the conviction that anything that God calls evil is really good comes from. And for the unbeliever, the Holy Spirit and the honor of God as Lord and the glory of the Most High God, those are not the source of of commitment that enables the unbeliever to persevere in whatever convictions they have. And the cost that they're willing to count for the sake of their convictions and commitments is also not based on what God in His Word defines as being of actual and ultimate value in the universe. They've assigned value and worth in their own way according to their own understanding and according to the values of the world. So for the unbeliever, for the unregenerate person who is spiritually dead in sins and trespasses, conviction and commitment and cost are ultimately defined by self. By what principles make sense to them according to their fallen sinful natures and depraved minds. According to what strength they have in themselves to persevere in being guided by those principles. And according to what cost they're willing, according to their own feelings, according to their own desires, what cost they're willing to count and to bear in order to stay faithful to their convictions and commitments. And so the question for us, the question for me as a Christian, right, who has been crucified with Christ, who has been raised with Christ to, to newness of life, who has been a, a, made a new creation in Christ Jesus, The question for me is, how much does that unbelieving residual tendency continue to influence the way that I make my decisions and live my life? And determine the convictions that guide me and the commitments that I have to adhere to those convictions and the cost that I consider valuable enough to remain faithful to them. How much am I allowing me How much am I allowing myself, my own feelings, even the ones that are normal and human and not inherently sinful, how much am I allowing them to determine the cost that I'm willing to count and the commitment that I'm willing to have to remain faithful to the convictions that hopefully are coming from God's Word? And it's not that as a new creation in Jesus Christ, 
my human feelings, my non-sinful, normal human feelings and desires. It's not that they can't play any part or be factors in the equation of my life at all, right? The, the question simply is, what part do they play? Are you familiar with the distinction that we sometimes make between something having a, a magisterial role versus a ministerial role? What's something that's magisterial? It's a magistrate, right? So something that is magisterial is something that rules, right? Something that governs, like a king, who we would call majesty, right? And something that is ministerial, on the other hand, is something that doesn't rule, it serves, like a minister, not like a monarch, And so we might say, for example, one example, and there are many, we might say that our church has a doctrinal statement. Or we might have a book of systematic theology that we use. Or we might have a creed that we recite, like the Nicene Creed. Or we might have a confession, like the Westminster Confession or the London Baptist Confession. And we might say, we should say, that those things can play a part in our learning about God's Word, and in our teaching of God's Word in the church. But the part that those things play must be ministerial and not magisterial, right? They can't rule. Because God's Word alone in Scripture rules and reigns supreme, right? And those other things serve like ministers, in helping us to understand and express and teach the truth that God's sovereign word reveals and proclaims in Scripture. So in the same way then, think about it this way, what part, what role do my experiences, do my human feelings, do my desires, do my impulses and instincts, even when they're not sinful ones, what role do I allow them to play in my life? Are they magistrates that govern what I do in my heart and in my life? Or are they ministers? Are they just servants to a greater authority? How often, honestly, do we give them the magisterial role? Our feelings, our desires, our impulses, our instincts. How often do we let them rule and reign and be in charge of the convictions that we form in our hearts and lives and of the commitment that strengthens our ability to persevere in those convictions? How often do we let our feelings determine the cost that we consider valuable enough, precious enough to continue to be faithful to our convictions and to our commitments? So see, this whole paradigm is all just an extension, isn't it, of the ultimate question of of who is sovereign, who is Lord of our lives. Is it ultimately me? Or is it ultimately Jesus? And see, this is really really getting to the heart of what our lives are going to look like in obedience, faithfulness, service, to Christ and to His kingdom, right? If I'm in charge, if my feelings are the magistrates, are ruling, 
my life's going to look a lot different than if I'm submitting all of that to the Lordship of Jesus in my life. Well, the disciples in Tyre, up in verse 4 of Acts 21, and the disciples in Caesarea, including Paul's closest brothers and friends in verse 12, including those, these, these are the guys who have been traveling with Paul in service to the gospel, in service to the kingdom for, for years now, as he suffered, as, as they've gone through persecution and opposition with him, including Luke himself who wrote this book, they all say, in this moment, in Acts 21, in verse 4, and verse 12, they all say to Paul, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. The cost is too high. It's not worth your life, Paul. Don't go. Because their own natural, normal, non-sinful, human feelings had the reins were reigning in their lives in that moment, were acting as the magistrates of their convictions and commitment and of the cost that they were willing to count. So, look at verse 13. All of his beloved friends here, companions, brothers, sisters in Christ, they're weeping. They're pleading with Paul not to go. Because Agabus has just confirmed as a prophet of God, the Holy Spirit, that Paul's going to be bound and turned over to the Gentiles once he gets to Jerusalem. So you can, you can picture this scene, right? You can empathize with this scene, right? You can put yourself in the middle of it, either as one of the ones pleading with your dear friend not to go, or you can insert yourself right into the scene as Paul himself who's hearing all of that, who's surrounded by all of that, who's being flooded with all of this emotion of his dearest friends who love him so much. If you were him, if you were in his shoes in that moment, what would you do? How easy would it be, right, to just say, okay, okay, you're right. It's not worth it. I'm, not gonna, I'm just going to stay here with you all. Caesarea is pretty nice. It's a good church. You people are loving and affirming and, and, and supportive of me here. I'm just, let's just all stay here together. Here's Paul. And, and these words are not fully a rebuke. Surely there is sympathy and deep feeling and emotion from Paul's own heart in these words. And and yet they are words of correction. Nonetheless, Paul says, what are you doing to me? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to focus on that phrase, you're breaking my heart, Paul says. The word breaking means 
to crush something into dust. To pulverize it. And the word heart is the Greek word cardia, like cardiac. And the word cardia in the ancient world, in the ancient mind, doesn't just refer to the physical organ that pumps blood in your body. And it doesn't just refer to the emotional part of a person like we sometimes have, have romanticized the word heart to mean primarily in modern times. For the ancients, the word cardia is the seat of the whole person holistically, physically, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. That's what, that's what the heart means, right? Thinking, feeling, and willing are all governed by the cardia in the understanding of this word in the ancient world. And that is how Paul is using it here. So he doesn't just mean, guys, with all this weeping and pleading, you're overwhelming me emotionally. He doesn't just mean that when he says, you're crushing my heart. It's also affecting him physically. And we can relate to that, right? Powerful emotions get felt physically in our bodies. But Paul is also saying, guys, what are you doing to me with this? You are crushing my will. He's also saying, you see, what are you doing to me? You're making me question my conviction, guys. And my commitment to the will of God, no matter what the cost, Paul's saying. So what does he do? What does he do when his own feelings are being stirred up like this? When his own emotions are being so powerfully influenced and impacted by these dear people who love him so much and by the ever-approaching realities of, of what Agabus had prophesied about and that the Holy Spirit has been testifying to Paul about all along, what does he do when the normal fear and terror that he feels in his heart, along with all of this love and outpouring that he's feeling from his friends, what does he do when all of that starts to, to, to become such a powerful impulse that it's threatening to take the reins in his life, that it's, it's threatening to start governing him? What does he do? Now, you ever been there? Every single day? When your feelings are powerful and, and they're taking the reins and they're driving you, they're governing you, what do you do? Well, what Paul does is the exact same thing that he pleaded with the elders from Ephesus to do back in Miletus, right? He commends himself to God and to the Word, which is able alone to build him up. He takes his thoughts and his feelings and his impulses captive to the obedience of Christ. He submits himself. 
He submits his feelings. He submits his desires. He submits his instincts to the magisterial authority of the one true Lord of his life. Jesus, you alone are my magistrate. Not my feelings and not myself. And so then, his commitment or his conviction becomes refocused. His commitment becomes refortified because the cost becomes reoriented away from self and on to Jesus and his kingdom. Because Jesus is the pearl of great price, the pearl of great cost. Jesus is the one who objectively, no matter what you feel, in reality, is worth losing everything else for. Because His glory matters more than any other glory and than anything else. And because His blessed kingdom and the countless eternal souls that are being brought into that kingdom through the gospel and the everlasting inheritance that belongs to all that belong to Him, all of that is infinitely and eternally more valuable in reality than anything else in this world, even than earthly life itself. I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish the course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's my conviction, that's my commitment, that's the cost I'm willing to bear. That's what Paul had said up in verse 24 of chapter 20 to those Ephesian elders. All of his conviction and commitment were being defined and governed by the word and the will of God and not by his own feelings and desires. Because he was grounded. Because he was abiding in God and in his word as he commended those elders to be doing in their own lives. And so here with his dearest friends, weeping, pleading with him, with his own feelings and instincts, screaming within him, he's able to say, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Just like Jesus, right? Before him in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, who said, my soul is Deeply troubled. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. I don't want to do this in the morning. I don't want to go there, God. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You are the majesty, not me. Jesus says, the Son of God says, Submitting himself to the will of his Father. And by way of that example, that that Paul follows himself, now his beloved friends, his brothers and sisters, follow that example too. They stop pleading with Paul not to go and they say, let the will of the Lord be done. It's not about what we want. It's not about what we feel. It's about God's will. And notice, don't overlook the huge significance of verses 15 and 16 where Luke says, after these days, we got ready 
and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us. Right? It's not, okay, let the will of God be done. See you later, Paul. We're, we're going to be over here in Caesarea. Will you go? We'll pray for you, brother. We went with him. Because they had become reoriented in conviction, commitment, and cost by the will and the glory and the lordship and the kingdom and the righteousness of Jesus. How about us? Are our own feelings, desires, instincts, impulses, are they more often the magistrates that govern us? and shape our convictions and determine the limits of our commitment and the costs that we're willing to count in following Jesus? Or are we learning the wisdom step by step because God is kind and patient as a good father, as the best father is with the most stubborn child? Are we learning the wisdom and the discipline of submitting Ourselves, our feelings, our desires, our impulses, our instincts, our wills, our lives, to Him who is actually and truly Lord of all. And now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up, strengthen you to be committed to those convictions, no matter what the cost where nothing else in you or this world can do that. Abiding in God, abiding in His living Word, that's how Paul, in the midst of the most pressing circumstances of his life, in the midst of the most intense emotions and feelings you can imagine, and you've never felt what Paul felt here, I promise, he remained focused. He remained grounded in the will of God to define the convictions and commitment that governed his life by abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his word. Let's pray together today that God will give us that strength. Our God, our Father, your word is a double-edged sword and it pierces us to the very core of our beings and it exposes in us all of the ways in which sin remains, all of the ways in which we tend to still be self-governed, all of the ways in which we do not submit ourselves to your Lordship in our lives. Father, thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your unending love for us. Thank you for always saying, I don't condemn you to us. Thank you for lavishing us with the grace of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that we need so much to grow. And so, Father, this morning, would you help us grow? Would you show us all of the ways deep down, the root causes, the root ways that we need to grow and trust you more and be submissive more and more and more to your magisterial lordship in our lives? And so, Father, as you do that, and as you transform that, 
Would you change our lives and make us more and more willing to serve you, to trust you, to be committed to the convictions that you lay upon our hearts and lives no matter what the cost. And so, Father, shape us and use your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.